in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. These are God's holy and erring and infallible words. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and erring and infallible word. You may be seated. You know, oftentimes when we think of forerunners and trailblazers, we sometimes see the role as exciting and exhilarating and even glamorous. Steve Jobs, for example, the founder and the longtime CEO of Apple, before his passing, we look at Steve Jobs and we think, man, I would love to be on the cutting edge, blazing the trail that became Apple with Steve Jobs. Henry Ford, the father of the motor vehicle, the creator of the Model T, Ford Motors, we would love to be on the cutting edge with Henry Ford, Susan B. Anthony even, the champion of women's rights, Damian Lillard, most of y'all probably never heard of him, but he plays for the NBA Portland Trailblazers, so, which is not necessarily the same kind of trailblazer, but nonetheless, it's a trailblazer that I would like to be. But that's not who we're highlighting this morning, I just want to mention Damian just to keep you on your toes. The point being, when you think of trailblazers, you sometimes think of them in terms of brilliance and glamour and prestige and pizzazz. However, for every seemingly glamorous trailblazer, there are those whose forerunning is far more gritty and far more grimy and far less glamorous. Take, for example, Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old African-American student who walked up the steps of William France Elementary School in Louisiana in 1960, escorted by four U.S. Marshals as the very first black student of that school. 
She has since then been celebrated and decorated as a heroine of the movement, of the civil rights movement. But in, in those early days, I can't imagine the difficulty she faced as a first grader. She was escorted by four federal marshals to school every single day that first year. She was mocked, she was cursed, she was threatened. Literally, as a six-year-old, her life was threatened. She was rejected often uh, from sitting in a class occupied by anybody else, and so she was left, not often, but all the time, so she was left to sit in a class occupied by herself and one teacher by the name of Barbara Henry, the only white teacher in William France Elementary School who was willing to step up and teach Ruby. Despite all the chaos and despite all the hardship, Six-year-old Ruby never missed a day of school that year. See, because sometimes the purpose for which you're running is more important than the griminess, griminess of the path that you've been assigned with paving. This brings me to John the Baptist. John's story is suited for Advent because the path of Advent is not absent of discomfort. The light of Christ, yes, the light of Christ is shining and has come in the season of Advent. That's what we are celebrating, but it is shining into a very cold and a very dark world. And so it is fitting that as John the Baptist is announcing to the world the arrival of this light, he is doing so in this very gritty and grimy setting, wilderness, camel skin, camel's hair rather, locusts. And this too, brothers and sisters, is Advent. This too is Christmas. And it is also fitting that John's an, uh, announcement to us is not only a gritty and a grimy announcement, but it is also an announcement that brings good news, and yet it brings good news with some discomfort, good news with some confrontation. This too is Advent. This too is Christmas. You see, John's announcement is a call to prepare the way of the Lord, but that call to prepare is a call to repentance for those who embrace Christ and a call to judgment for those who reject him. That is uncomfortable, that is confrontational, and yet that too is Advent, that too is Christmas. So this morning we want to Take a moment and see how this call that John gives us takes shape in him as a man in his ministry and in his message. John the man, John the ministry, John the message. First, let's talk about the forerunner as the man. In verses 1 through 6, again, we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. As we have already established, John the Baptist was not a glamorous preacher. In fact, if John the Baptist preached in our day and in our context, many of us would be suspicious of him. Because his ministry did not appear very prosperous. It almost looked like this guy was doing something wrong. He had no large building. 
He had no pulpit to preach from. His pulpit was the banks of, the, of Jordan's river. And Judea's, and his, his pulpit was basically the version, Judea's version of the boondocks. It was, it was his version, it was Judea's version of the sticks. He was out in the middle of nowhere on the River Jordan preaching the gospel. That's not the normal location of a king's processional. But the one that John was forerunning for was not a normal king. The normal, he was not a normal king that he was preparing the way for. This was a different king with a different task. Thus, he was preceded by a very different man stationed in a very different location. John was stationed in the wilderness for his forerunning ministry, away from all the luxury, away from all the wealth, away from all the hustle of the city. Isaiah prophesied that this forerunner wouldn't be in the city, but rather in the wilderness, beckoning everyone away from the comforts and the securities of the city, away from the pleasures of the city, away from the distractions of the city. So John, in retreating from the madness and the busyness of the city, positions himself, and all those who are, who are willing to follow him, he positions them in the wilderness in order that they may truly see and hear from God. You know, in order to see the king, we are often required to depart our locations of glitz and our, our locations of ease. Because the value of this king is not wrapped up in a location. The location isn't giving us any um, indicators. If we see him in a glamorous location, that isn't going to necessarily speak to the, the value of this king. The value of this king is wrapped up in the king himself. In addition, we see that John's grittiness and his less glamorous life not only is, wrapped, is seen in his location, but it is also seen in the attire the wardrobe, what he wears. Verse 4 describes John as wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Again, normally not the gear of, king, of a king's proclaimer, of a king's forerunner. The one who announced the king would usually step out with some sort of regal wardrobe, dress it up a bit because he's representing the king. But again, this is a different king with a different task. And thus he is preceded by a totally different man, robed in an entirely different gear. Even when you look at John's food, you talk about his location, you, you talk about his attire, but even his food left a lot to be desired. Not sure if anybody, when you get out of church today and you head over to the Local Popeyes will be looking for locusts and wild honey, but that was John's diet. The bare bones, insects, and honey. Interesting enough, approved by the law. <laughs> you go back and you look at the law, and you realize that there was provision made to eat locusts. And in fact, locusts are proven to be very nutritious. Not that I've tried them. But this diet isn't winning any Breakfast of Champions awards anytime soon. So his location is unusual and unglamorous. His attire is unusual and unglamorous. His food is unusual and unglamorous. And all of this can really mess with our Christmas sensibilities, right? 
Because we typically think of Christmas as the time for the best food and the time for the biggest parties and the time for the most expensive gifts. But Christmas is also in the wilderness, saints. The camel's hair, garments, the locusts, and wild honey. You see, part of preparing for the arrival of the king is pulling away from everything that would distract us from giving that king our full attention. John is a reminder to us that preparation for the Lord is not necessarily glamorous. The preparation oftentimes is grimy because the world that the Lord has entered into is grimy. It is broken. It is filled with grief. It is filled with suffering. It is filled with corruption. It is filled with sin. And so John the Baptist was not a glamorous preacher. Now, on the other hand, he was a prophet sent from God. Interesting enough, one way in which we see that is looking back at his unglamorous exterior. Take a second. Let's remember. Let's, let's, let's picture this in our minds, looking at the garments of this king's forerunner, this, this garment of camel's hair. While it may have been unusual for uh, a typical king's forerunner, this was absolutely appropriate for a prophet which this king's forerunner just so happens to be. In fact, there's a particular prophet that Malachi prophesied would return again. We hear it first in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. This is pointing to John the Baptist. But then we hear this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so this prophet, this one who is coming to prepare the way, according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is indeed going to be Elijah resurrected, according to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And many proclaim John to be Elijah, the prophet, even though John himself would not accept the title. But Jesus himself placed the title on him, said, hey, if you're willing to accept this, then you've seen Elijah. And John the Baptist. So what does that mean? Well, it means that John was not necessarily the exact replica of Elijah coming back from the dead, but rather he embodied the work and the ministry of Elijah. And one of the first ways in which we see this, oddly enough, is in John's clothes. 2 Kings chapter 1, a chapter before Elijah in Bible, in Bible accounts is taken up into the heavens. In chapter 2, but we read in chapter 1 this account of Elijah demonstrating his prophetic power that God had entrusted to him. The king of that day, Ahaziah, had been severely injured, and this king had begun to seek the wisdom of other gods to find out whether or not he was going to get better or whether or not he was going to die. And as he was doing that, an angel of the Lord appeared to Elijah and told Elijah, hey, there's, there's a king here that's in my city, inquiring of other gods about his fate. So go back to the king who 
who, or, or tell the people that are looking for these other gods and these other prophets to go back to that king who sent them and tell him, this is what the Lord says, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. Now, of course, <laughs> this obviously shocked the king's men. Here's Elijah coming to them and saying, hey, who are you? You guys looking for someone else besides the, the true God? Well, go back and tell that king, is this, this is what the true God says. You will surely die for this. So that's pretty shocking. Shocking for the king's men, shocking for the king. So the king himself, picking up in chapter 2 uh, or, or chapter 1 of 2 Kings, the king himself says this. What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Listen. And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah. So Elijah and John operating by the same dress code. We'll come back to that shortly in just a second. But the point I'm making is that John, although he is not necessarily appropriately dressed in our mind for a king's forerunner, he is very much appropriately dressed as one sent from God. But not only does Malachi point to his arrival, Isaiah points to his arrival. And Matthew points, to, points us to Isaiah. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist was not a forerunner with a glamorous appearance in a glamorous place with glamorous garments, but he was a prophetic one. Now let's turn our attention a little more to his ministry. First, when we think about the forerunner's ministry, the trailblazer's ministry, John's purpose in life was very clear. And it was very clear, uh, very clearly stated in several places and at several times, including the Gospel of John, the first chapter, the sixth verse. This is what it says about John's purpose. It says, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. So here in those verses, we hear about John's ministry. He was a messenger sent by God to bear witness about the light who was Jesus Christ. That sounds glamorous until we fully process that verse, that verse that says he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. What does that mean? Well, it means that John's role was to give all the shine back to Jesus. Not to blaze a picture-perfect path for himself to glory in. In fact, only G once Jesus finally comes on the scene, John immediately begins to fade to the background. There's a slow push of John backwards. In fact, John's disciples, as this is happening, they take notice and they ask John, John, what is this all about? John chapter 3, verse 22 it says that after this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea, uh, to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Listen, for John had not yet been in prison, but now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples 
and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and now all are going to him. Remember the words that we read. All were going to John, right? And now we read, all are going to Jesus. But take notice of how John responds to them. He says, verse 27 of chapter 3 in the Gospel of John, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I am full of joy that everybody is going to him and no longer going to me. He must increase, he continues. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. What is John's response to his disciples saying, look, everybody's going with him now. Nobody's going with you. John says, it wasn't my life to take in the first place. It was always his. It was always his to shine. This was John's purpose on earth. And it's a reminder to you and I, family, that it is our purpose as well. We too are witnesses to the light. Our purpose is to place the spotlight on Christ. Our purpose is to decrease in order that he may increase. Even as much as John calls us the light of the world, or, 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 or rather Jesus calls us the light of the world, it is not a light that's intended to shine independently of him. We are the light of the world, not in the sense of the sun, the plant, the star of the sun, where the source is within itself. No, we are the light of the world in the sense of a light fully powered by the sun and pointing back to the sun. You see, the Advent season for us should be a fresh reminder that we all must decrease in order that he may increase in us. This was the ministry of John the Baptist, and it is our ministry as well. Notice how well John's ministry also is supported until it isn't. Chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. John had the entire region coming out to him, preaching his message, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Probably has some really good singing like Corey out there singing on the Jordan River. They was having church. But by the end of John's story, he is imprisoned. By the end of John's story, he's in prison on trumped-up charges. By the end of John's story, he is beheaded in the most unceremonious and anonymous way possible. He's beheaded as a result of a king's favor to a young lady who was dancing and caught his eye. From obscurity to notoriety and then back to obscurity. All in the blink of an eye. And this too, fam is Advent. It is not for us to be known. It is not for us to be famous. It is not for us to increase. 
He must increase. We must decrease. Notice that even John recognizes what's coming. He recognizes who's coming. He doesn't recognize it completely. Because as it's happening, he realizes, wait a second, I didn't know it was going to happen like this. But he has some glimpses of it. Because in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The forerunner is not greater than the one who follows him, John is saying. Here's why. The forerunner can't be greater than the one that's following because the one who was following was before the forerunner. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For by him, for by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. The forerunner can't be greater than the one that comes after because the forerunner is preparing the way for the one who ran before him. The one who John goes before went before him in eternity past. The one whose path, is, the one whose path John is preparing prepared the world that now John exists in. He says, I'm not worthy to even lace his sandals, the one that's coming behind me. That's the ministry of the forerunner. But what is the message? The first part of his message is actually the announcement in verse 2 of chapter 3. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is to say the arrival of the son. This is what the kingdom of God at hand means. The arrival of the son will bring near the rule and the reign of the triune God. The already not yet of the, the kingdom nature is an already not yet, but the already not yet begins with the arrival of the sun. It starts, the rain begins to simmer up. The beginning of all things being completely restored is near. All justice being established is near. All sin being eradicated is near. All death being eradicated is near. All evil being destroyed is near. Salvation coming now is near. That's the first part of the message. Now, the second part of the message is actually where it initially begins in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is our response to the arrival of the kingdom of God. So why do I say it's the second part of the message, but it's the first word? You see, because his arrival is not contingent upon our getting right. Light has appeared in the darkness. And now, out of, the, out of that light, we are being offered an opportunity to receive it. The light is coming whether or not you receive it or reject it. Do you understand? The kingdom of God is at hand. He is coming regardless of whether or not you choose to receive or, re or reject. And so the repentance is a response to the kingdom coming. It doesn't provoke the kingdom's arrival. The kingdom is coming. The king is coming. So repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is coming. 
rule and reign of God is near. And that rule and reign will bring grace for those who repent or judgment for the wicked, judgment for the hard-hearted. This is the message of the forerunner. So let's ask another question. What is repentance? Because he talks a lot about it in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 tells us, beginning at verse 5, it tells us that repentance is certainly the inclusion of the confession of sin. Because in verse 5 it says that then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we know that it is at least the confession of sins. But then we see something happening in verse 7 that's very interesting. That tells us that it may be something more to repentance. Verse 7 it says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So what is happening here? First of all, we are seeing that repentance is more than an acknowledgement of sin. It's more than just coming out and saying, yeah, I mean, we're here too, you know. Here you baptizing some people. Came to see what's going on. See, it's even more than simply saying, yeah, I am a sinner. You're absolutely right. Saul, <laughs> when he was doing all sorts of craziness against David, there were a couple of, t- uh, there was moments where Saul said, man, you know, really, really sorry. <laughs> no, seriously. And then he went about doing his own thing again. There were times, there were times when, when Moses was talking to Pharaoh and plagues were coming left and right. Pharaoh's like, Moses, I'm really, really. And then presumed to continue doing what he was doing. And so repentance is more than simply acknowledging sin. In fact, repentance is more than feeling bad about our sin. Because we hear in Matthew chapter 19, the story of the young ruler. This young ruler asks Jesus, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, why do you ask me about what is good? And then Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Listen, and then it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Scripture doesn't say that he went went away. It was like, you know, cussing Jesus out as he turned away. Scripture says he actually felt sorry about it, but not sorry enough to repent. Are you tracking In fact, Judas, the the disciple who betrayed Jesus, when he killed himself, he was filled with grief over his betrayal of Jesus. But he was not repenting. Repentance is not about a position that we hold in life. 
The repentance that we walk in as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord is not connected to our position in life. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were indeed the religious and the political brass of Jerusalem. They were the elite class. But this did not sway John's rebuke. You brood of vipers. Who gave you warning to come and flee the wrath of God by coming to get baptized? Repentance is not even about the ethnicity or national origins of our lives. The repentance we walk in as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord is not connected to our ethnicity or our national origins. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were part of the chosen people of Israel. They were Jesus' ethnic kin. But this does not sway John's rebuke. In fact, John says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones his children. You know, we, we spend all of these, you know, some, sometimes we spend all of this energy trying to make a determination as to whether or not we are in the story of Israel. And we'll be like, hey, I think, you know, I think as a white guy from Ireland, I think God might be talking about me. Then the black guy might be, well, you know, think as a black guy from Africa, God might be talking about me. And the reality is, is that if those two don't submit to Christ, he's not talking about either one of them. Are you tracking with that? John says he can raise up stones from the children of Abraham. And so is origin important? Don't, don't hear me as saying that that should be nullified and should be erased and we should not have those, have discussions about history. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is, is that if you put your hope in origin, then you will be sadly mistaken in doing so. So simply feeling sorry about your sin has no bearing on whether we are living truly repentant lives that prepares our heart for the arrival of the Son of God. And our position and our distinction within our communities as leaders and, and the brass has no bearing on whether or not we are living truly repentant lives. And our ancestry and our family of origin and our ethnicity has no bearing on whether or not we are living truly repentant lives that prepares our heart for the arrival of Jesus. And so if none of those things have any bearing, then what does? What shows repentance? John says, instead, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, John is saying that a truly transformed heart will be displayed in a truly transformed life. In fact, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he testified of his own gospel work through the same regions that we're hearing about in this, in this story, this account in Matthew chapter 3, the regions of Jerusalem and Judea and, 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 all, and, and all around those areas. And even Paul talks about reaching out to the Gentiles as well. Paul says in Acts chapter 26 that he declared the gospel first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all of the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles that they should, listen, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You're hearing that. So Paul says, hey, I went out declaring this gospel, and this gospel included a call to repentance, and this call to repentance included keeping, performing deeds in keeping with that repentance. Let me ask you a question. 
Does the activity of your life, the fruit of your life, the results of your actions in your life resemble transformation? Does it resemble change? Does it resemble a submission to God? Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Are you pursuing to walk with more grace in this life than your former life? Are you pursuing to walk with more love in this life than in your former life? Are you pursuing to walk with more honesty in this life than in your former life? More selflessly in this life than in your former life? More generously in this life than in your former life? More peacefully in this life than in your former life? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Because John's words to the Sadducees and Pharisees are are startling to us. Because John is basically saying, if there is no fruit in keeping with repentance, then there's probably no repentance. Now, let me settle your heart here because some of you might be like, oh, my goodness, I I know I'm not perfect here. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying, I'm not calling for perfection. But does your life resemble that some change and some submission to God is at work? Because in order to call yourself repentant, it means to have a change of mind and a change of heart and literally a change of direction. And so if there has been no directional change in your life, John would say there's likely a chance that you're not repentant at all. One theologian says this. He says, genuine repentance is confirmed by actions. The theologian is preacher and pastor is Tony Evans. He says, when I travel, I tell the airline agent, I'm Tony Evans and I have a reservation. The agent then asks, can I see your proof of identification? They don't want mere communication that I am who I claim to be. They want authentication. Therefore, they want to see something that verifies what I affirm. Similarly, shouting hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord is fine, but insufficient. Repentance shows up in your hands and your feet, not just in your lips. Without the fruit, the visible proof proof of true heart repentance, judgment is coming, which leads us to verse 10 through 12 in closing. Verse 10 says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so the arrival of the Savior brings grace to those who are ready to receive it through repentance. But to those who refuse it and reject it, the arrival of the Savior and his kingdom brings judgment. The kingdom is near, but that doesn't just simply mean that the kingdom is near for salvation. It means that the axe is near. That's what John says in verse 10. 
The kingdom is near means also that the baptism that brings salvation and redemption and newness of life is near, but also judgment is near. In fact, John says this really funny, really interesting thing where he says that, that he captures this idea in the sense of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Is that, is that a second baptism possibly that we're going to get here? That's not what John is pointing to. John is actually pointing to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, where Ezekiel promised that there would come a day where God would put his spirit within us and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. When John talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire, he is talking about Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. So what is John saying? John is saying that the arrival of, of, the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of the promise. That no longer will we be called on to live a life that God has called us to live without the power of God to live it. Now we will be given his very spirit in us, sealing us to the day of redemption, keeping us until he calls us, and comforting us in our despair and in our heartache, and empowering us both to be witnesses and to live the life of resurrection that he's called us to live. The life of transformation, the life of change. And so John's baptism is when Christ arrives and we embrace him. Yes, I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance, but the one who is coming is going to baptize you with a baptism that changes the inside, that transforms the heart and replaces the stone, the stone one with the heart of flesh. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Now, when you talk about this baptism of fire, it's very interesting because there are some places where we don't hear the baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. We just hear the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some theologians believe that this baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, is actually meant for purification. Talking about when we are baptized with the Spirit, we are also being purified by God. But then there are other theologians who I kind of lean towards who think that this is, as we often see, when the kingdom comes, it is both a salvation to some and a judgment to others. And the reason I believe that is for two reasons. One, because of the verses that are around it. Did you read those verses? I know we're, I know we're running a little long, but I'm wrapping up. Did you read those verses? It said, verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and done, and what? thrown into the fire. What about verse 12? His winnowing fork, right after he declares fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand. and He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is that about? Have you ever seen this, the winnowing fork? You go into the wheat, you toss it, and the wind catches what's no good. And the good seed, the, the grain drops, the good grain drops. And you just keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that over and over again until you get the grain here and the chaff here. And then you take all the chaff, you gather it, you sweep it up, and then you burn it, right? So what is he saying? He's saying that which holds no weight, that which has no weight, is going to be off cast in the wind. That which has no root, that which, that which is not genuine, off to the wind, off to the wind, off to the wind. As I continue to use the fork, 
to, to, to pull it up. And then in the end, I'm going to gather it. I'm going to light it on fire. Fire. And then why do I believe that this is a fire of judgment and not necessarily the fire of purification? And it could very well be both. Like I said, there's theologians on both sides of this, so I'm not married to it. But here's the last reason why. Because John is talking about, remember John being the second coming of Elijah. And remember that John's story, his connection to Elijah starts with his garments. 2 Kings chapter 1, remember, they said, hey, man, who's that guy that's telling y'all that I'm going to die because I was looking for other guys? And they said, man, I don't know, some dude with camel's hair and a leather belt that says he's Elijah. But the rest of the story goes like this. Hey, go send some men to get that guy. And so they do. You know, they, they get the captain of 50, and then they get 50 men. And, and Elijah's sitting on, a mount, or sitting on a hill, chilling. And they say hey, man, you need to come down. The king wants to see you. And Elijah says, nah, I'm, not, I'm not coming down, but I'll send something down for you. And guess what he sends? Fire. Then it comes back and it happens again. King's like, hey, what happened to the other guys? Hey, get the other captain of the other 50. Send them. They go to the hill. Hey, king said you need to come down. I'm still not coming down, but I will send something down for you. Fire. Consumes them again. Then the king does what? He sends, he's, hey, man, you need to get this guy down. So he sends another guy. This guy's begging, please, please, <laughs> please. I know what happened to the other guys. So please, please, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to start, I'm not trying to start trouble. Will you please come down and come see the king? Elijah comes down. He goes and he declares to the king, yes, exactly what I said is going to happen. And judgment comes to the king's house and the king dies. So the one who is coming after the, in the same ministry of Elijah, as he's talking about fire, I believe he's talking about the same kind of fire that Elijah was talking about. Fire of judgment. And so what does that mean? If it means that, it does. But if it doesn't mean that, if it doesn't mean that, verse 12 is still there. You still got this winnowing fork thing going on. So it's still not good for you, all right? Still not good for you. But what's the point? The point is this. The preparation of the forerunner is a preparation of salvation and joy for those that love Jesus. For those that hear about the arrival of this Savior and recognize that I am indeed a sinner and that I lay my life down before this Lord and Savior. It is, a, it is a time of joy, but the preparation of the forerunner for those who reject that Savior is a scary time because it is a time of judgment. And that too, saints, is Christmas. That too, saints, is Advent. And so we celebrate saints but we also pray with tears that those, our brothers and sisters who do not know Jesus, our family that does not know Jesus, that they would come to embrace him, that they would turn from their sin and embrace the one who came wrapped in swaddling clothes, lived a perfect life, died, on a died a death on a cross and bore our sin in order that we may live again and rose from the grave with all power in his hand, 
ascended into the heavens and continually makes intercession for us. That is the Advent story. That is the Christmas story. Amen. Amen. Sorry for keeping you long. Let's pray.